This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. I'm Jane Coaston, and this is The Argument. Earlier this month, I was scrolling Twitter, as you do. And I came across this tweet by the writer Matt Taibbi. It read, Fox is one channel that no longer represents real institutional political influence in this country anymore. The financial, educational, political elite with all the power is on the other side, and I think they're the people to be worrying about. I've known of Matt's work for a long time. He's a longtime political and financial journalist who covered the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations. He famously argued that Goldman Sachs was a, quote, great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity. He's a lightning rod, often because he criticizes mainstream media, like the New York Times. And he's right on a lot of big issues, but I think he's wrong on this. However, his tweet offered what I thought was a really interesting frame to think about where power actually lies in America. Is it held by the people who watch Fox News, including your neighbors and Republican representatives, senators, judges, and you know, the former president of the United States? Or the financial, educational, political elite, like Wall Street, academia, big tech? Could the answer be both? So I invited Matt in the show, along with Michelle Cottle. Michelle is a member of the New York Times editorial board and has been covering national politics since the Clinton administration. She was raised solidly Republican and has written about how the people Matt's referring to, the Fox News watchers, have wielded their power to intimidate Congress. I started by asking Matt why he wrote the tweet. So first of all, I spent most of 10 years after the 2008 financial crisis covering Wall Street. One of the major stories that I spent a lot of time on in the last couple of decades is the rise in income inequality. And so I don't think of politics in terms of blue versus red. I don't think of it in terms of Democrats versus Republicans. My way of thinking about politics is probably closer to the definitions that the Occupy movement came up with, which is the 1% versus everybody else. And my question is, who do those people vote for? Where are they investing their money? What institutions are they sponsoring? And, you know, I think overwhelmingly we've seen that there's been a, a shift in how those people behave politically. I mean, Thomas Piketty did a paper recently that talked about the, the Brahmin left and the merchant right, where the traditional picture is the wealthy people in society tend to support the right whereas people who are educated tend to support the left. And the United States is a little bit of an exception to that picture. Increasingly, both the educational and financial elite in this country are supporting Democrats. And I don't mean the left by that. I mean the Democratic Party. Right. It's important to separate this because if you talk to people on the left, they do not think of themselves as being Democrats, the same way there are a lot of people on the right who do not think of themselves as being Republicans. Exactly. You know, if you ask... What is Fox? Who do they represent? They represent a, a lot of people. But apart from that, you can't really say they're backing a major swath of the institutional power in this country, as you might have 20 years ago or during the Bush years when Fox News was, you know, what you watched to see what the people who were getting us into the war in Iraq were thinking. 
that's not so much the case anymore. I think there's been a shift in terms of the political picture in this country, and it's very much expressed by, for me, the censorship issue. Michelle, what do you think Matt is getting right and wrong about this intersection of power? In my view, wealthy people tend to support whatever will keep them wealthy. I don't think you can lump everything together, and I don't think it works just as purely an economic proposition, especially because populism in this country may have economic roots, but the way it plays out in politics is not economic. It's kind of ethno-nationalist. What Trump was pitching was not an economic populism. That's not where his policies— well, That's not is, true. That's not where his policies went. What he was doing had a certain economic flair to it, but when you look at what really motivates people, it was the immigration issue. It was the they're coming for your kids issue. It's they're destroying the American way of life issue. So it, it gets beyond economics pretty quickly. And I would say I wrote a piece a while back that essentially Trump ran as one thing and governed as another thing and ran as kind of someone who could be all things to all people type candidate and then governed basically as Mitch McConnell. Well, I cover Trump's campaign, so I was at his speeches, and um, it's it's absolutely not true that there was no economic component to his address in 2016. It was a huge part of the picture. Obviously, race and immigration were central issues for Trump. There is absolutely no doubt about that, and he played on some of the worst instincts of, of, of the electorate. But there were enormous similarities between the Trump movement and, for instance, the Bernie Sanders movement. And I heard people who I interviewed over and over and over again responding to all kinds of things in Trump's message. I heard Trump argue against the antitrust exemption for health insurance companies. I, I, I heard him going after the press. The elitist press was a huge part of his his but that's, presentation, that's and I know economic. that because we're talking economics, and he it's, absolutely, a, cl- it's a class issue. He, well, no, no, we're not talking about class and culture because the cosmopolitan. Well, I'm talking about class. Well, we were talking about economics, and that's different. Uh, his pitch in 2016, as Jane points out, was not how he governed, and it's not how he ran in 2020. So he pretty quickly discovered that the key to maintaining his popularity wasn't to actually provide a huge tax cut for the struggling people. It was to tell them that the immigrants were coming for their jobs. Well, you could also make the argument that that's how he lost the, as Jane says, that he ran as one thing. He could easily have done something else when he got into office. Who knows if that might have done better for him? Yeah, I mean, Uh, maybe the fact that he that he didn't win in 2020 is connected to the fact that he didn't deliver on his message. This idea of betrayal of sort of ordinary working people was a huge part of his message. Now, he might have been dishonest about that, but there's no denying that was a huge part of his message and that his criticism of this idea of a political and financial elite that had tuned the rest of America out was central to his whole pitch. I want to jump in here because I think that, Matt, you mentioned Trump going after the press. You kind of mentioned like the cosmopolitan elite of the press. I am the cosmopolitan elite. That's how I think of you, Jane. You're, yeah, you're it's like, like, the it's, it's like Jeeves and Wooster books just breaks out every 10 minutes. Lots of piano. But I think that there very much is a difference of opinion here about what 
institutional power really means here. You see accusations of like the cosmopolitan media, but those accusations are coming from senators, senators who can pass legislation. What does this mean? What are these differences in power and where power lies actually mean when it's between a powerful media outlet, but also getting yelled at by powerful politicians like the president? Sure. Okay. But if you want to talk about the media, it's not even close how the media tilts. I mean, when I came in to the news media, and I'm also the son of a journalist, I grew up in a family of journalists, the composition of the news media class-wise has changed dramatically in the last 50 years in my lifetime. When my father was coming up in the business, and obviously, let me say, the business had tremendous problems with diversity. It was almost entirely white and male. Once upon a time, that was a serious problem. It was also intensely militaristic. But going back to the 60s and 70s, maybe the 60s, journalism was more like a trade than a profession. People who are in journalism, they were more likely to be the sons and daughters of electricians or plumbers than they were to be Ivy League educated people. And that changed with my generation. After all the president's men, they overwhelmingly voted Democratic. They were not as iconoclastic as they had been before. And by the time, you know, Trump is yelling at the press in 2016, Donald Trump is wrong about almost everything, but the observation that he was making, I think, incoherently in 2016 about us was correct. We were almost entirely very well-educated. The national news media comes from a very narrow slice of America, and they have an enormous influence on how this country thinks. You can't really grasp what this means to the rest of the country. They feel completely locked out of the debate as presented in the national news media. Something that drives me nuts is that we have these kind of intramedia debates. There is an entire swath of people who do not care. There's an idea I once saw on Twitter. I've never forgotten that liberals kind of have cultural power in America, but want political power. And conservatives wield political power in America, but want cultural power. And so no one is happy. Does that seem even to you? Because I think that for many liberals, they would say, like, I would give up the Grammys to have more Supreme Court nominations or something like that. So you got to make a distinction between pop cultural power and cultural power. So now I grew up in Tennessee and Alabama. Mostly I come from a family of hardcore Republicans. They have at some point moved to Texas and went feral. So I get an earful about the media. And my father and I, during the Trump administration, just could not discuss the media or anything along those lines because of his sense that they were out to get him and all of his conservative friends. I think there is a real sense of persecution or resentment or feeling looked down on. And let's be clear, my father is not a poor out-of-work coal miner. He is is a very affluent, well-educated Republican and has been for years. But he and all of his friends do have this real sense that the culture is leaving them behind. We are talking about the secularization of America, the ethnic and racial diversity that has kind of displaced white men, the growth of gay rights, which, you know, I'm not that old, but when I was younger, gay rights, what was that? That wasn't even a thing, really. The loosening of traditional gender roles, all of these things are kind of moving in the direction that conservatives see 
makes them uncomfortable and they just kind of feel like if they speak out against it, they will be trashed by the media, the cosmopolitan elite, all of the people that Trump railed against. You know, for them, Trump was an opportunity to push back at the people they felt were running over them, despite the fact that they are incredibly affluent and powerful. Right. When you're talking about the 1% versus the 99%, part of the reason that I think that that messaging was so effective was that the 99% was encompassing millions of Americans. And that, you know, that was the the pop in the populism. Matt, how do we think about class and economics when you have people like Michelle's father, who is, as Michelle said, pretty affluent, but is still seeing himself as being put upon culturally? How do you think that works? Look, this is an argument that's that's constantly made that the people who are in populist movements in this country shouldn't be because they they have plenty of money and they're affluent. It's not actually an economic situation. A couple of things in response to that. First of all, again, there's been a tremendous demonstrated shift in how the wealthy vote in this country in the last 20 years. After the 2018 midterms, 41 of the 50 wealthiest congressional districts now had Democrats, Democratic Congress people. The top 10 wealthiest districts were all Democratic. It's been moving in that direction for a while. And After 2008, the only people who saw net gains in wealth were at the very top of society. There's tremendous poverty and despair all over the country, and it's not just confined to a couple of places. It's all over the country, and it's completely myopic to say that this doesn't have an impact on national politics on both the Republican and the Democratic sides. And again, I can't stress enough that I heard the same kinds of complaints uh, from Sanders voters that I heard from Trump voters. On the Trump side, I would hear a former auto worker say, you know, Bill Clinton promised us that they were going to do retraining. And after NAFTA, that there were going to be plenty of jobs for people like me. And my family was a union family and we voted Democratic for decades. And now I'm voting the other way. Like, I I met a lot of people like that. And yes, there there are people who have money who voted for Trump. There's no question about that. And And there are a lot of people who voted for Trump for terrible reasons. But you can't ignore that there's this other contingent behind the populist movement in this country. I think it's worth talking about how the people who do have power in whatever sense, how they have used it in these differing ways. And so occasionally we see this in conflicts over, quote unquote, big tech. So you see Twitter and Facebook using their power to moderate the news and thus moderate what people see on these platforms. But conservatives would argue that that way of shaping the cultural milieu is an incredible show of power to be able to do that. And YouTube. And YouTube, yes. But then we see Republicans. There have been a host of efforts in states across the country to essentially limit the ballot box. We've seen already with the Electoral College and the Senate being weighted towards Republicans, specifically Republicans in rural states. Michelle, is that even in any way or not? And why is one worse than the other, would you argue? (laughs) I think if you talk to anybody across the political spectrum, there's a kind of growing sense that big tech has too much power. But in general, we're back to the question of balancing the political power and structure 
of Republican politics with what is seen as the cultural world being against them. And I think it's important to note that both sides use this as a tool. It is very powerful politically to say, this is against me, so it's necessary for me to fight back with this. So Republicans say, well, the culture is against me. Academics are against me. Big tech is against me. If you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, every crazy thing that comes out of her mouth, she's like, well, they're just against me and trying to cancel me. So of course I have to do X, Y, Z. And the same thing happens on the Democratic side where they like, Republicans are trying to tear down democracy. So of course we have to do ABC. So let's just stipulate that this is a game that politicians play. Now, that does not mean that it doesn't have some real-world consequences. My concern with a lot of these voter laws you're seeing passed in the states, where, incidentally, Republicans still control the vast majority of state governments, so they can meddle in elections and redistricting and all of that a lot more efficiently. But It's not even so much the voter access laws that are quite so terrifying as the, well, if we don't like how it comes out, we've given the power to the Republican state legislator to toss out, you know, whatever election officials they don't like. Matt, I was just thinking about how even in state legislatures where Republicans hold total power, they don't act like it. They act as if they are being besieged by some cultural entity that is somehow more powerful than them, which is why all they can do are these like signaling legislation instead of doing things like fixing electrical grids. But I'm interested to see your thoughts on that kind of political power on that state level. Again, I am just not focused on that. I'm deeply worried about Silicon Valley, the confluence of companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Twitter, these companies are more powerful than nations are at this point. Their ability to control information flow is unprecedented. It's a thing that we have to worry about on a scale that we haven't had to worry about in our history. And this phenomenon of content moderation of a handful of unaccounted, unelected people with no transparency, making decisions about what people can and cannot see is a completely new and terrifying and dystopian uh, development in American history. Again, the split here is not so much about left versus right as it is about big versus small. One of the first stories I covered was about Google's Project Owl, and actually it was covered in the New York Times when they made a, a shift in their algorithm and a series of small independent media outlets on both the left and the right, ranging from the World Socialist website to Truthdig, saw massive drops in, in traffic. And it's things like that, the locking out of the Hunter Biden story, which is, an, I think, an unprecedented act. This is where I think we have to worry about in the future. There's no due process for any of this. It's a complete replacement of how we used to distribute information to people. And ultimately, we're going to be dependent upon their political leanings going forward. And that's an extremely dangerous situation. For me, I am less concerned about Silicon Valley or Silicon Valley as it stands. I think Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, is one of the greatest laws ever written in the history of collective time. With regard to giving um, these entities the power to moderate and edit third party as in user content and not get sued for it. Well, why aren't you concerned about you? If you you work in the media, they could say tomorrow, I'm sorry, we're we're not going to distribute your material. 
And what would you be able to well, do about yeah, it? Yeah, but they could say that to me anyway today. I mean, the Times could do that right now if they wanted to. I recognize that these companies have an immense amount of power, but we tend to treat power as like a pie that we're like, well, if Silicon Valley has this much power, that must mean that state governments or the government writ large has less power because Twitter has more power. When I don't think that's how it works. All of these entities have a lot of power, but state government has the power of state violence. Well, state government also has the advantage of nobody pays any attention to it, in part because local media has been decimated. So you do have a lot of power in the hands of these legislatures and not as much sunshine as would be useful as a counterbalance. I want to back up a little bit. My argument is not that social media entities and that kind of that that's not a form of power. And my argument is not that politicians don't have power. My argument is that everyone in this conversation, if you are able to take part in this conversation, you have power in some ways. But it is extremely, as we've mentioned, very profitable to say, I'm actually not that powerful and kind of foisting it off. You know, we're lowly Facebook. All we're trying to do is help people come together (laughs) in Facebook groups to, I don't know, adopt puppies, which is actually one of the few Facebook groups I am in. Hello, this is Joey calling from New York. I love your podcast. And the thing that I'm arguing about with anyone who will listen is the existence of organized religion in today's society. Is it necessary? Uh, More importantly, is it necessary to provide a moral code for the way we ought to act? As a confirmed Catholic, someone who is raised Catholic, but these days is more agnostic, I think that the church as an institution is more harmful than it is helpful and very hypocritical in a lot of ways. But I also know a lot of Catholics who are good and honest and beyond decent people. So I just wonder what the role of organized religion is in our society. And again, how can we sort of come to a middle ground in terms of acknowledging the flaws in religion, but also seeing the good parts? Thank you very much. Joey, I think that's a question that would not just be a podcast episode, but an entire podcast, many books, and perhaps an entire line of thinking. But I argue that much of what can be problematic within, say, Catholicism, which you and I were both raised in, was never necessarily the strictures of Catholicism, but the people of Catholicism. Those are the people who failed the Catholic Church, as the Catholic Church failed a lot of other people. I think that the challenge here is that organized religion, I don't really see the problem being in the religion part or in the organized part. It's the fact that people are involved. But I think we've seen throughout history that the role of faith can guide people to be truly great. So the role of organized religion in our society is an integral part of our society. And I don't really think that we can do anything about that because I think even the effort to excise organized religion is itself problematic because that, again, is people doing a thing and people, again, are sometimes not so great. So I hope this was helpful. And let me know if you disagree or agree.
Normally, this is where I ask you what you're arguing about. But right now, a lot of workplaces that went remote during the pandemic are making return to office plans. So I want to know, how are you feeling about going back to in-person work if you weren't already working in person? Whether you've been working remotely all year or are an essential worker, leave me a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324, and we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. I want to ask you, Matt, like, how much power do you think voters actually have? And are voters influencing politicians or policy, or is it going the other way? You know, a huge theme in the reporting that I've done for most of my career is that voters have less power than than they think. The press has always highlighted the divisions between Republicans and Democrats, whereas I think the most important areas to focus on, if you're a journalist, are the areas where they agree. It's what the donors want is the most important thing. So you might have a significant number of people who want gun control or want to reduce the defense budget. But what we end up getting almost always is what the donors want. So it's important for me, I always thought, to focus on where's the money? What do these institutional sectors of the country want? And what are they actually getting? You know, I covered the financial services industry for a long time. After 2008, the public was furious. They wanted a whole range of reforms, and they voted for politicians who said they were going to do all kinds of things. And we ended up getting almost nothing in terms of actual reform after 2008 that had any teeth in it. Meanwhile, Wall Street got massively bailed out, including the people who were directly responsible for the 2008 crash. And my understanding of American politics is informed by that dynamic. The idea that money translates to power and voters are kind of incidental to the picture because they've had limited choices. One of the things that's shifting, though, in that is that the activist base is what lawmakers say they're most afraid of. And in part, it's because now there is this ability to raise money through the internet and other means with smaller donors. Like when corporate America for its very brief window post-January 6th, decided it was going to cut off funding to a lot of members. The individual donors actually stepped up in a lot of cases, and their funding filled the gap, especially with kind of firebrands like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and people like that. Her fundraising numbers were eye-popping, and this was not from folks in her district. It was from folks in her district and nationwide who like her firebrand persona, and they're like, 
this is what I want. I'm going to give to her. It's the activist base now has a lot more oomph in fundraising as well. I did have one more question here, which is that I've said before that I think a lot of these cultural battles or culture war things are kind of bread and circuses. I do think a lot of this is sort of like, well, we'll give them something to yell about somewhere else and then they won't yell at us. Or we can say that we put out a letter about how much we oppose this kind of training happening in the military or something like you can do. You can position yourself in all the right ways and not really have to do anything. But with that said, Michelle, is there any sign of this ever ending? I personally don't think so, because I feel like we've been culture warring, quote unquote, since like 1967. And this is kind of what we do. But I would ask, would this ever end? And who's winning? No, it's not ending. That's an easy one. And the question of who wins, it's like, it's little skirmishes. You're going to gain ground here. You're going to lose ground there. On some issues like LGBT rights, I think there's been massive ground gained by the progressive side. But, you know, the battles over guns and the abortion wars kind of wax and wane. It's going to be an ongoing thing. And there's always something new to pop up. There's always going to be some new front in this. I mean, again, I think we're in the middle of a a major shift in terms of a lot of the dynamics that you're talking about. You know, Michelle, you talked about the increased power of the activist base. Well, we've seen in the last couple of election cycles some major changes in patterns in American voting. So prior to 2016, it was basically tendency that whoever raised the most money was going to win in a national election. Donald Trump raised a little more than half of what Hillary Clinton raised, and he still won the election, which was, you know, an enormous demonstration of a change in how American voters behaved. When they were told that Donald Trump was an unacceptable choice, they defied the sort of national consensus about that. Similarly, the Bernie Sanders movement was a major change in sort of how Democratic Party politics were organized. Typically, the leading candidates had always been corporate funded and had depended upon the financial services industry, health insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. Now you had a candidate who was actually able and in position to win without sort of corporate influence. Now, they rallied and defeated him anyway. But this is something we're seeing all around the world, this this phenomenon of people trying to take back power from the institutions that had concentrated power previously. And the tendency here is that the institutional powers are going to strike back. They're going to clamp down. They're going to have authoritarian solutions to try to curb the impulses of the population. And we've seen that in countries all over the world. And I think this is a new reality that we're going to see in politics, not just in America, but around the world, that we're going to stop thinking in terms of left and right, Democrat and Republican. And we're going to think about insiders versus outsiders. And that's going to be the new framework that's going to be definitional. So, Matt, I did have uh, just one more question for you. If you have people who are gathered together in opposition to, say, state government, but their reasonings are so disparate that it almost doesn't make any sense. Like, Senator Josh Hawley isn't mad at Twitter or Facebook because they curtailed the rights of leftist activists. He's mad at Twitter or Facebook because he thinks that they're censoring conservatives. And if they were to censor people on the hard left, he'd be like, amazing, get the Ayatollah off Twitter. But there are a host of people who are still 
count him among the people who are challenging tech hegemony. Where does that go? I keep thinking about there, there was an incident. I had to do a story about foreclosure in Jacksonville, Florida, and had to go to this thing called a rocket docket where they, the courts were so overloaded with foreclosure cases, they had to create special courts and bring judges out of retirement to rubber stamp. They ran it out like a little tiny conference room to do this, and they had this ancient retired judge who was just basically foreclosing a, you know, a family every couple of minutes. Now, in that room were people who were across the political spectrum. There were hardcore conservatives, Republicans, and then there were poor minorities who voted Democrat their entire life, and they're all saying the same thing, which was, I can't believe that they, they bailed out those banks on Wall Street and they're going to put us out in the street. Those people had something in common. You know what I'm saying? And I think at some point when things get bad enough, then their distaste for the status quo is going to outweigh their distaste for each other, is my sense. They're never going to agree about everything, but we have to weigh the things, the disagreements that are more important, and figure out what's most crucial to us, whether we hate each other about X or Y cultural issue, or whether we want to have more political influence over our economic futures. You know, that's something that still has to be decided. But I do think that it's a possibility that you could see those divisions being overridden by the kind of common misery. You're a very hopeful person. I have a... <laughs> He's a glass a, half full kind of guy. I was like, wow, I did not... That's an a incredible stark. amount of optimism. I have witnessed and seen that people who agree on many things will let their overpowering loathing for one another supersede everything. Hate is an incredibly powerful emotion. And on that, it's true. Matt Taibbi is author of several books, most interestingly to me, Hate Inc., and he's the writer of Substack newsletter TK News. Michelle Cottle is a member of the New York Times editorial board. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. I can't recommend you read all the think pieces out there about power, but there are a couple things I referenced in our conversation, including the book Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America by Chris Arnade. MIP is in Vox. Trump was supposed to change the GOP. The GOP changed him. You can find links to these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Bashaka Durba. Edited by Allison Bruzek and Paula Schumann. With original music, mixing, and sound design by Isaac Jones. Additional mixing by Carol Savarol. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. 